agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm hanging in there. How about you? <laughs> I'm okay. We had a few technical blips this morning, but everything seems to be moving along, yes. so I'm feeling better. Technology <laughs> happens sometimes. So, uh, so yeah, you know, b- before we get started, I just wanted to let people know that I, I appreciate the the very few of you who checked out my uh, YouTube efforts. Uh, it really wasn't quite, didn't quite work out. And so, but I wanted to thank everyone who subscribed and did all that. And probably best that I not do a given like the 38 other irons I have in the fire, but it was kind of of a fun thing to do anyway. And I just wanted to let people know that I was going to discontinue that to work on other things and thank everyone for checking in. Uh, so, so thank you very much. I want to thank our newest supporters as well, Joseph and uh, Maldor06. Uh, we Really appreciate the help, you know, especially now as advertisers are pulling back, given, you know, well, everything that's going on in the world. And of course, you know, when you're a supporter, you get access to a full length bonus show each week, as well as a bunch of other things at different levels of support. And to check all that out, you can just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And now sometimes a monthly support pledge is yeah, too much of a commitment. There's also PayPal. You can find a support link there for at politicsguys.com slash support. And all, we also include those links, of course, every time in our show notes. And finally, if you'd like all our bonus content, but you can't right now afford to financially support the show, we totally get it. It's not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to all of our content. Happy to do it. All right, Kristen. So uh, what are we going to start off with today? Okay, so our first story uh, that we're going to discuss is the um, State Department IG firing that made a lot of headlines actually late last week, and then it kind of continued on into this week. So just to kind of give everybody a a primer, um, the story began late last week, like I said, when a week ago, uh, Friday, President Trump fired the State Department's Inspector General, Steve Linick. Um, So just to backtrack even further, Linick had been a holdover from the Obama administration. He had actually been um, appointed and and then confirmed um, in 2013. So Trump's letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi stated that he no longer had the fullest confidence in Linick, um, and immediately Democrats such as Pelosi uh, were firing back on that move, uh, saying that the move was sheer politics, um, and the move was just one in many in a list of watchdogs that Trump has fired as of late. And there were also reports that Linick had been looking into allegations that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, um, who was the person who actually recommended Linick's firing, had a staffer run his personal errand. So that was um, sort of the drama that was. I guess, brewing earlier this week. So then this week, um, Pompeo defended his recommendation, saying that all of us serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States. In this case, I recommended to the president that Steve Linick be terminated. Frankly, it should have been done some time ago. Um, And he also cited Linick's poor job performance as rationale for his decision. And then Obviously, it, it became very political. Uh, Democrats and a few Republicans demanded further explanation. And two Democratic lawmakers, uh, Representative Elliot Engel and Senator Bob Menendez, have decided to launch an investigation. Uh, but Republican leadership, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, said that the president took the advice of Pompeo and has the ability to hire or fire 
from within the ex- executive branch. So um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I have a lot of thoughts about this. Do you have a lot of thoughts about this? I'll let you talk about this first. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, my my first, I guess, thought or point is that nothing that nothing that President Trump is doing is in any way illegal. I mean, uh, the president uh, mm-hmm. and the president and Pompeo are right that inspectors general serve at the pleasure of the president. That that said, there is perhaps something going on that is a violation of law, at least if reports are to be believed. It's said that uh, in some reports that uh, that Linux has been barred from his office even to remove his personal effects. And I didn't see any uh, secondary or, or conf- confirming reports on that. But if that's the case, mm-hmm. then it actually violates the Inspector General Act of 1978, which says that the president needs to give 30 days notice, which he did in that letter to in that letter to Pelosi. But during that time, the inspector general is still the inspector general. And so that would be a violation. But it's a it's a violation without any kind of a real remedy. And so mm-hmm. it, but but still, so that would be that would be problematic if that's if that's the case, certainly. But we don't I mean I, I'm not confident enough to say that is the case, but just more generally, hey, the president gets to do that, and I think it would be a lot less of a concern to plenty of folks on the left if this weren't part of a uh, part of a pattern. I mean, in the last I think six weeks, President Trump has removed, I believe, five inspectors general, and you know mm-hmm. I, I I do find that to be troubling. So those are my initial thoughts. What about you? <laughs> So I, I, um, I, this is something that, um, that I, that I thought about a lot because I remember, um, and, and I think probably there are some people on both the right and the left who will kind of go along with this. But I remember that when, um, Barack Obama was president, um, during the Obama administration, there were a handful of firings of a turn of, uh, inspectors general at that time. And, um, a lot of those inspectors general were holdovers from the Bush administration. Um, I know this was brought up by Kaylee McEnany during a press conference, and, and it was brought up by a number of pundits. Um, that being said, um, Senator Chuck Grassley actually, I think, said something very, very smart. And I think it's sort of where I stand on this right now. Um, he is one of the only Republicans to sort of come out and say, well, you're right. He can fire, you know, he can hire and fire, you know, these people, these people in the executive branch, they serve at his pleasure. Um, and inspector general certainly falls on, into that category. Um, but we do need more of a rationale for why this is happening. Is it illegal to fire somebody like this? No, but we need more of a rationale. And that's sort of where I stand. Um, I, I do think that, um, that this is something that's been politicized from administration to administration. Um, I think that in 2000, I'm thinking back to 2015, um, Democrats were very, very defensive of Obama's firings of um, inspectors general. And on the other hand, Republicans were outraged by it. I mean, you had then Representative Mark Meadows, who I think had just joined Congress, um, who was actually furious. And he and Ron Johnson um, established this legend. They had written up this legislation to empower um, inspectors general. And then there were several inspectors general in the Obama administration who drafted this letter to Obama saying that um, this action inhibited their own investigations that were ongoing. So I feel kind of like the shoe was on the other foot um, a few years ago. And I guess I'm not 
necessarily making excuses. My point isn't to point fingers at the Democrats or the Republicans. My point is just as an American citizen who's frustrated by, you know, the the politics that seem to be, you know, sort of like pervasive in situations like this, is that there seems to be a big disconnect. Um, you know, whichever party seems to be in power in the executive branch, um, they tend to support, you know, whatever the president says and does and whoever the you know, opposition party is, they seem to be outraged by actions like this. So I guess um, I'm not saying this is right, but I feel like there has to be some measure of consistency. Um, You know, is I mean, obviously, this is within the president's right to do this. Um, He's not breaking any laws by firing this inspector general. But, you know, we do. I think Senator Grassley is right. We have to have some measure of accountability. And I guess just as somebody who is watching all of this from from the, you know, the cheap seats, there just seems to be a lack of consistency there. I guess that's where my frustration comes in. Yeah. You know, I I think it's, I think it's a good idea to compare the Obama and the Trump records on this. I I totally agree for, for consistency sake. And, you know, Barack Obama removed one inspector general, and that was the inspector general uh, of the uh, Corporation for National and Community Service. And this was in 2009. Donald Trump has removed uh, the five inspectors general. And therefore, I, I would say most people would say far more important agencies, the intelligence community inspector general, the Defense Department inspector general, HHS inspector general, State Department inspector general are the ones I, I that and maybe that's four. But I, and so I think for consistency's sake, when we make that comparison, I think it would be fair to say that, number one, Donald Trump has removed far more inspectors general, and that's just math. And number two, I think most people would say that the the importance of the inspectors general that Donald Trump has removed are far greater than the importance of the single inspector general that Barack Obama fired. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, one of the things that that kept circling in my mind is that during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, there wasn't a permanent inspector general for the State Department. So this position essentially was filled by somebody who had and, and, you know, it's been sort of widely reported and accepted that the person who filled that position had ties to leadership within the State Department. And one of the criticisms of the right and even of some people sort of on the moderate left is that there was no real measure of oversight while she was Secretary of State. And so in 2015, there were a lot of questions um, swirling about this idea of oversight over the State Department. Um, You know, in, you know, everything happened with the the Benghazi debacle. I mean, there, there were a lot of things happening and there was very little oversight. And I guess I would point to something like that. And again, I'm not pointing fingers necessarily at the left, but what I'm saying is that there seems to be a disconnect between the right and the left. Whoever is in power seems satisfied with, you know, um, sort of scant explanations, um, temporary um, positions that should be permanent positions, um, a lack of oversight. Um, and whoever the opposing party is, especially in an election year like this, it's it's being made out to be um, something that's worthy of investigation. I mean, you have this now you have this investigation of everything going on and this firing of Linux. And it just to me, it just it seems very, very disingenuous. And so my solution moving forward would be sort of like uh, what Chuck Grassley said, as I mentioned before, which is we need an explanation. And I think that, you know, um, you, with President Trump, um, this is somebody who, you know, most of the way through his first term as president is is sort of cleaning house um, of these a lot of these holdover inspectors general. It seems a little late. Um, and I think a lot of people on the right 
um, and mostly on the left, have questions about it. Why now? Why are, you know, what, what is the rationale? Um, I, as a Republican, um, generally I support what Mike Pompeo says and does. But in this case, I, I think he needs to offer an explanation as to why he recommended the firing because it doesn't ring true. And I think that as somebody who had issues, who took, or I should say had took issue uh, with the way that um, the Obama administration handled some of the, the firings and, of course, this lack of oversight during Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, I have issues with this as well because I think we need to apply consistency. Um, so I do have some questions about why this is happening, why it's happening now. Um, and similarly, I have questions for Democrats who say that that this is somehow worthy of an investigation. I mean, is this really the best use of our resources right now during an election year? It just feels like political posturing on both sides. So I just have a lot of questions moving forward. And I'm, I'm looking to see in the next week or so if some of those questions get answered either by Mike Pompeo or by President Trump. Yeah, I, I don't get the sense that either Mike Pompeo or Donald Trump are planning <laughs> on saying anything more about this. I, I certainly I don't get a feel of a great deal of transparency, just basically like what we didn't like what he was doing, whatever it was, but we're not going to go into detail. The most I heard from the State Department was that uh, it's about in part about leaks, believing that in some way, perhaps Linux was responsible for leaks. So there's you know no no evidence of that. And also it was mentioned that he uh, was not an enthusiastic proponent of or promoter of Mike Pompeo's mission statements to State Department employees. Mm -hmm. And honestly, uh, given uh, given all the mission statements I've read, if you are not an active proponent of mission statements, I'd say that's actually a mark in your favor because mission statements are usually the worst kind of sort of jargon filled garbage. And so I'm that actually makes me <laughs> like Linux a lot more if he's anti mission statement, because it's usually just stuff that the people on the top floors kind of push down, and make everyone feel better about their, you know, their cells anyway. But, uh, you know, for me, the, the, the larger issue here, though, is that this idea that we have inspectors general that serve at the pleasure of the president is sort of curious, I think, to me. Yeah. I mean, we we have an alternate model. We have a model of uh, those who are appointed to independent regulatory agencies, and they're nominated by the president, concerned, confirmed by the Senate, just like most inspectors general, but they can only be removed for cause. And, and I think, given the nature of the inspector general role, for cause removal makes more sense. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, um, I I think I would support that. Um, one of the one of the things that that troubles me about this idea of inspectors general serving at the pleasure of the president is that you have, um, and 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 you mentioned this sort of this potential for this highly politicized position. Um, and this isn't something that's exclusive to Republicans or Democrats. You know where um, uh, there's actually been quite a bit of legislation that's been discussed and um, pushed regarding sort of this idea of inspectors general being this relatively unbiased, truly independent body um, of oversight over these committees and and over these uh, departments in the executive branch. Um, and I know that both Republicans and Democrats have supported that in the past. I would personally support that. This idea of an inspector general being somebody who's not tethered to um, a political party, not tethered necessarily to a president or to even, um, you know, anybody serving in leadership within the executive branch, but just somebody who is truly independent, um, not somebody who's a political appointee. I know there's been legislation that's been discussed 
discussed and drafted uh, regarding the the idea that sometimes inspectors general have political aims or they're um, you know political appointees or supporters, um, people who have um, you know served in Congress, um, friends of the president, so to speak. Um, and like I said, this isn't something that's exclusive to Republicans or Democrats. This is something that just it, it sort of just seems like common sense that um, this position of all positions should be something relatively unbiased and independent. So that's I guess that's sort of where where I stand. And, you know, in, in some ways, I'm glad that stories like this are pushed into the limelight um, just for accountability's sake. I think it's important that we look at this. Um, and, and you know, moving forward as a Republican, I would urge other Republicans to, to look at this with a critical eye and say, you know, if we're going to point our fingers at Democrats when, it, you know, somebody, a Democratic president who is in office um, does something like this, we have to be willing to do this to our side, to the Republican yeah. side and say, look, this is this is problematic. Um, we don't want there to be any question surrounding oversight of these, um, you know, these huge departments um, that are that are highly politicized. We want this to be an unbiased process or at least as unbiased as it could be. Yeah. I, I think, though, as a practical matter, we're not going to see any change in that because, number one, there aren't no. too many presidents who would be willing to uh, sign that in, into law, basically, even if there could be legislative majorities for that, you know, for that sort of reform. And in fact, there are people who argue that any sort of reform along those lines would, would be an unconstitutional uh, uh, interference in the executive power, sort of the unitary executive theory folks would say that any kind of, uh, any kind of position in the executive branch that can, uh, that is not subject to the removal of the president, uh, at, you know, serves at the pleasure of the president is in fact uh, not constitutional. It's been an argument that a number of, of folks on the right especially have made. I don't, I don't tend to agree with it, but I mm-hmm. think between the folks who want to make sure that their president has as much power as possible and then the folks who just feel that there's a constitutional separation of powers issue that we're unfortunately unlikely to see any changes here at a time when I think there's such a crying need for some sort of more independent sort of body or person that would have a little bit more legitimacy in this process because this stuff is not going away, I don't think. No. And and I think this is the frustration of a lot of us who tend to focus more on policy than on, on politics is we see this this need for, um, you know, we're sort of, I guess we're sort of seeing things um, differently on both sides. Um, you know, we see this need for, um, you know, removal of bias and independent bodies and, and oversight to some extent, in my case, and, and to some extent oversight. Um, but I just, you know, the, the reality is, like you said, I, I just don't think this is this is going to happen anytime soon, especially with the trajectory we've been taking, um, you know, over the past few decades, things seem to be so much more politicized and so much more, um, I guess, um, you know, pointed in that direction. Um, I think, you know, we're not going to see anything like this anytime soon. Um, right now, it just seems like a battle of the wills to try to gain power and to try to make the other um, person look bad during an election year, no matter who it is. And I think this is, you know, I don't think this is going away anytime soon. My pie in the sky ideas of like independence and, 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 you know, unbiased oversight, I don't think are going to happen anytime soon, but I think it's an important conversation we need to have. And of course, you know, you could say there are people, there are, you know, leaders and lawmakers who might actually sign something like that into law. Unfortunately, those leaders and lawmakers will never be president. I don't think in our lifetime. So, um, you know, they they don't remain very popular, sort of those 
people who, you know, demand transparency, real transparency and accountability and, and fairness. So, um, yeah, and that's kind of a shame to some of us. So, um, but that's sort of where I stand right now. I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen. I don't think we're going to hear anything out of Mike Pompeo, um, you know, beyond what he said. He clarified a statement earlier this week. He said that, um, you know, he basically didn't think Linick was doing his job and the firing was a long time coming. And I think that's probably where we'll stand, although um, I, I do agree with, like I said, Chuck Grassley on this. Yeah, these things tend to just kind of go away fairly quickly. The public stops playing attention because honestly, good government, institutional reform, that sort of thing, those aren't the issues that really capture the public of the public's imagination, which is, is unfortunate because it's, you know, it's, it's pretty important stuff. It is. It definitely is. All right. Uh, so uh, moving on, what do we have next? Okay, so we have um, another story of, that's sort of related to coronavirus, um, but at least there are fewer of those this week. Um, so um, this this story comes out of um, Michigan and Nevada. So President Trump um, actually threatened to withhold federal funding from Michigan and Nevada, so the, the states of Michigan and Nevada. And this is after Michigan Secretary of State announced that all voters statewide would receive an application to vote by mail in November in light of um, the in light of coronavirus exposure. And Trump claimed that this was done illegally and that the action would lead to voter fraud, but incorrectly cited that the state would send the ballots themselves and not the applications to vote by mail. Then, however, the state of Nevada announced that they would send the actual vote by mail ballots to voters statewide ahead of their June primaries. And Trump's response was about the same. And it should be noted that President Trump did correct the tweet regarding his error about the mail in ballots versus the applications in Michigan. Um, and it should also be noted that, you know, if, unless you've been hiding under a rock, um, it's it's pretty clear that this has been a really big sticking point between the political parties and it's an ongoing issue. So there's widespread Republican concern and claims about voter fraud being more rampant with uh, vote by mail scenarios. And Democrats largely deny these claims. Um, and so this is this is really again, this is one of those issues that's just sort of a little um, piece of a much bigger issue, sort of the tip of the iceberg. And it's something that um, that I've been following for many years uh, and I'm not surprised it's come up. I'm not surprised it's been politicized, especially with everything going on. What's your take, Mike? Well, I, I guess my initial take is that I don't know that it's necessarily a coincidence that President Trump focused on Michigan and Nevada and not, say, Georgia, Iowa, Nebraska and West Virginia, mm -hmm. which are all doing the same thing that Michigan's doing. And they you know, were not mentioned by by President Trump. Obviously, Michigan is being a, is a swing state where polling has Donald Trump behind and Nevada, kind of a similar situation. And uh, so so there's that, you know, um, uh, clearly, I think a lot of a lot of Republicans, including President Trump, have two concerns. And one concern is, is the, uh, you could call it the good government, the fraud concern. And then the second concern is the, uh, is the electoral advantage. I mean, uh, President Trump said uh, in March on Fox News that uh, Democrats have levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again when he was talking about expanded mail voting. And of course, that's not a legitimate rationale for uh, yeah, you know, for not having expanded voting, say, well, if more people voted, we wouldn't win. That's, you know, that's, that's democracy. You don't get to choose your electorate. But I mean, it, it, and in fact, though, 
this is a somewhat unfounded concern. There have been multiple studies that have been done. Uh, one most recently in April by, by Stanford uh, found that really looking at mail-in elections from 1996 to 2018 found that there was basically a neutral partisan effect for uh, both turnout and vote share for either party. So I think those concerns are somewhat unfounded. And uh, not only that, but there are five states that are all vote by mail, essentially. That's Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. And we don't see any evidence of increased increased voter fraud or anything like that. And so uh, really, these are claims or concerns that seem to be unfounded by any of the research, any of the data. And plenty of people have looked into this. And, you know, we've had vote by mail states for quite a while now. I think Oregon's been doing it for over two decades and we just haven't seen these issues. And so I, I think these concerns are largely uh, groundless. I have to disagree with you about the concerns being groundless. So just to sort of start off, um, when I saw that, I actually saw the tweet from from President Trump before everything sort of blew up. Um, I, I like I've mentioned on the show before, I sort of lurk on Twitter, but I'm not really necessarily active on Twitter. And of course, I follow a lot of, um, you know, Democratic and Republican lawmakers. I follow President Trump, um, whose tweets get enormous attention. So obviously, they're up at the top of my feed. And I did see this tweet. Um, the very first tweet he uh, where he mentioned the uh, state of Michigan sending out ballots. And I cringed because I thought, no, that's not that's not what the Michigan secretary of state said. I was glad to see that he issued a uh, a correction um, via tweet. Um, but I, you know, I totally disagree with the idea that sending applications, just automatically sending applications to you know, voting citizens of a state is is problematic. I don't think that's problematic. Um, I do think that it can be problematic for what's going on in Nevada to happen. So where the state would actually send the ballots to individual voters um, and they would be able to vote by mail, the entire state would be able to vote by mail. So while there have been some studies showing that, you know, there's been relatively little voter fraud um, there have also been a lot of incidents um, over the past decade or so since we've so, since the idea of vote by mail has grown, um, where there have been misplaced ballots. Like, um, you know, I was looking up some of the statistics in Los Angeles County. There's a registration rate of 112 percent of adult citizen of the adult citizen voting population. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of room for error there when you're automatically sending these ballots out. And of course, California was one of the states that um, President President Trump hasn't spoken too much about there are there's a lawsuit going on there. There are a lot of questions, um, especially in California, about, um, you know, these sort of inflated voter numbers. Um, the rolls haven't been, you know, the, the voter rolls haven't been cleaned properly. Um, so we're just going to send these ballots to these addresses and hope that, you know, things happen. There have been plenty of instances of people being indicted. I know there was a, a situation, another situation in California, and I believe it was 2016, where eight people were indicted. Um, eight people were indicted for, um, yeah, it was 2016. I wrote it down. Uh, eight people were indicted for, um, I guess, basically conspiracy to commit voter fraud and to to perform this ballot harvesting. Um, in 2016, the Election Assistance Commission found that um, more mail ballots were 
misdirected to wrong addresses or unaccounted for to the tune of 6.5 million ballots. I, it's one of those things where can you put your finger on it, you know, largely that this isn't something that that we've ever really done before, where an estate just sends ballots to all of its voting citizens. And, you know, I understand that there are fears you know, with the coronavirus and, you know, there are there are widespread fears that, you know, this could, you know, accelerate the spread, especially in states that are heavily affected. But I think we have so many questions and this this is a sticking point with good reason. There have been so many situations where a box of mail-in ballots has been found. I mean, just last week, there were 20 mail-in ballots that were sent for the South Carolina primary that were discovered in the state of Maryland. I just feel like it opens up a, a can of worms when it comes to this sort of thing, this idea of ballot harvesting, misdirected ballots, um, people receiving two ballots. I know my own parents received multiple ballots. They always do vote by mail and they received multiple ballots and they had questions about that. So you hear about these sort of these these uh, situations where this happens. Um, you know, I do think that it's a situation that's sort of ripe for voter fraud. Um, but, you know, as for, you know, President Trump saying he's going to withhold funding, I have some questions about that. Um, but I do I do agree that um, the idea of sending ballots to every single voting citizen in a state could be very, very problematic and could overwhelm the system quickly. Yeah. Just, just as a clarification, uh, when you said this, this is something that hasn't been done before. I mean, you mean in Nevada, because actually, again, there are five states that do it yeah. all the time as a matter of course. And so uh, we, we have a, we have a pretty good track record in five states or over a period of a number of elections. There's there's been a lot of uh, experience with that for sure. And, you know, I think it's it's important to. Uh, on the left to admit that, you know, what President Trump said, well, just as a matter of common sense, it makes it makes sense that there is greater potential to monkey with ballots, have other people fill them out, have them be misdirected if it's mailed in than otherwise. And logically, it's it's essentially impossible to dispute that. And so we have to start from there and say, well, OK, is there a way we can systematically look at this and see if there's a problem? And a lot of researchers have done that and have really found very little to, you know, very minimal problem. And but but it's true. There are these there are these stories and they're more than just anecdotes. They're actually things that happen. And so what we need to do in these cases, I think, is to weigh the increased likelihood of issues with the vote, votes not being recorded correctly and so forth against, especially during a time of coronavirus, the public health risks and not only that, but the concerns of people who don't go out to vote because of that. And so I think that in this particular situation, weighing those things, that actually something like Nevada, what Nevada is doing is is very much in the public interest, especially in light of the uh, of the pandemic. Now, in a, in a different time, I think it's probably something that should be approached more cautiously, uh, you know, with with ideally with the voting system being something that the, the citizens uh, get get more of a decision on. It's done more deliberately. But when you're dealing with a public health emergency uh, and something that could literally lead to the loss of, you know, a, a lot of lives, I think that this is an entirely appropriate thing. See, I, I tend to think that what's going on in Michigan or what the Michigan Secretary of State has put forth makes a lot more sense, which is um, this idea that, yes, you can go 
out and vote, we're going to take these, you know, precautionary measures to make sure that we, um, you know, aren't spreading the virus rampantly. Um, because a lot of people do like to vote in person. And a lot of people do. I think that option needs to be available to people. However, um, you know, the idea that the Secretary of State of Michigan wants to send applications to people to be able to vote for mail, I think, is a very reasonable solution to this problem. There are still, you know, voters out there who don't realize that they can vote by mail. Um, they don't know where to get the forms. A lot of these people are, you know, in vulnerable situations. A lot of them are perhaps elderly and aren't able to go out and vote. Um, I know many, many people who just work a lot of hours simply um, and aren't able to, to, to get out and, and vote. Um, like most of us are able to. So I think this is a really um, a good solution, a positive solution moving forward. I personally have taken advantage of the of the vote by mail um, system a couple of times. It's very convenient. It makes it very easy. I think it's a good option for especially people who are high risk, um, people who um, may need to stay home or just don't feel comfortable going to vote. But I think that other option needs to be there. Um, and so, you know, I would sort of jump on board with people like the chair of the Republican National, uh, the RNC, uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel, and say that I think what Michigan is doing is entirely appropriate. I think, um, you know, when you have high stakes primaries, high stakes elections, I think the idea of, you know, rolling out this this only vote by mail um, system very, very quickly like this, I think it could easily overwhelm a system like the system in Nevada. It also changes the way that candidates have to campaign, which is something to think about that both sides would have to think about. They would have to campaign differently. They'd have to adjust their, um, I guess, their strategies, um, which is, I mean, obviously that that's something that's been talked about on both sides. So, um, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you sort of halfway. I think um, the better solution is to send the applications and to give people the option. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's I think there's a lot of a lot to what you say there. And probably if I were a secretary of state, that would be I would lean more toward what uh, Michigan's done. And, you know, ironically, I guess you could say that, you know, this is a, a a partisan sort of twist is that, of course, the the Michigan Secretary of State is doing the more, I could say, conservative thing. The compared to Nevada is a is a Democrat, whereas the Nevada Secretary of State is actually a yeah. Republican. So go 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 figure. I, I actually know. didn't know that until I looked it up um, yesterday. I think I I looked it up and I was surprised to see that. I I knew that the Secretary of State in Michigan was a Democrat, but I was surprised that the Secretary of State in Nevada was a Republican. But again, you know, it just kind of goes to show you that you can't ever call these things sometimes. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I guess we could we can probably move on from this, right? Then the next. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, do that. OK, so the next story um, deals with the World Health Organization. So um, this week, President Trump wrote a letter to the chief of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, that directly criticized his leadership and the organization's handling of the pandemic, including its response and work, uh, its response to the virus and its work um, specifically in China. He discussed concerns that there was a cover-up of the virus and that the virus's impact during the early days of its spread. Um, And he accused the World Health Organization of taking sort of a soft, non-independent stance on China. So after demanding independence from China, Trump vowed to withhold funding to the organization if changes were not made. And so just so you can have the numbers, um, U.S. funding would drop from $450 million 
to $40 million. And since the World Health Organization has stated that they would launch an independent investigation into the organization's response to the virus. So this is, um, this is, you know, this is a whole other level. This is a whole other can of worms. This idea of not funding the World Health Organization. What's your take on it, Mike? Well, I, I guess I, to start with, I'll say that I think that President Trump has a good point uh, about his concerns with the w, with the WHO not being critical enough about the Chinese data, Chinese transparency early on. But of course, the same can be said of President Trump himself, who uh, early on was very willing to accept positive <laughs> data from China, saying they were doing a wonderful job and great things, and it's all under control in China and all that. So, so you know, uh, uh, but I also think. This is in part more of a rhetorical thing in this in ongoing battle with China. You know, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to me that a commitment to uh, major substantive improvements, who doesn't want major substantive improvements? Sure, why not, I guess, here. But uh, I guess more, it, it seems to me that this is sort of the Trump approach to uh diplomacy, for lack of a better term, sort of very blunt diplomacy. It's basically a my way or the highway, take it or leave it sort of thing, you know? And when we look at, you mentioned some numbers for WHO funding, we should point out that there are two different types of funding. There's the voluntary, there's the mandatory or assessed U.S. payment to the WHO. That's determined actually by law. That would be a lot yeah. more difficult, right, for the president to stop because that's, you know, that's because congressional funding. But right. by far, the biggest part of our contributions to the WHO are through voluntary contributions. And how that typically works is that it's money that goes to U.S. health agencies. They get to combat various things like uh, uh, vaccines for polio, malaria, TB, that sort of thing. And then we give those funds to the WHO to use them. And that actually the president can stop. And it's it's like mm-hmm. uh, a whole lot more. In, uh, uh, in 2018, the last year I have data from it was $281 million. And, you know, that could stop mm-hmm. all of that. So I, I, I guess I feel like there definitely should be an investigation because it seems like there are some there are some issues here, you know, um, Right now is maybe in the midst of a crisis is probably not the time when it, when a, a institution is best in an op, in a place to do an investigation. Certainly, it's after, and not only that, but President Trump is assuming things, assuming conclusions that actually I think need to be proved out by evidence. So I'm I'm all in favor of an investigation, but I'd, I'd like to start with the investigation and not the include not the conclusions, which. President Trump already seems to have reached. And so uh, uh, I certainly think there are concerns, but we shouldn't jump to those conclusions, as I think President Trump has uh, has a propensity to do. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think I told you earlier this week, I have a lot of feelings about this and my mind has actually changed quite a bit as this story has unfolded, especially this week. Um, because, you know, at first it seemed I, I think a lot of us were just angry. And, you know, looking to assign blame is sort of a natural byproduct of being angry about something like this. Um, You know, you have so much you have, you know, this uh, this pandemic is is has sort of spun out of control. You have, um, you know, the the number of deaths going up, the number of infected going up every week. Um, And it just it seems to play out on our TV screens and, you know, in our lives. A lot of us have to work from home. A lot of people are out of work, um, furloughed or or let go. Um, You have businesses closing. And so there's sort of this 
this anger that builds up and it's been building, building, building. And there's a lot of frustration with China because I do think that there is a lot of um, concern. And and I think it's very, very valid concern that they were covering up numbers, um, that they were um, sort of um, sugarcoating uh some of the statistics coming out of that country that they were sugarcoating the effects of the virus, the death number, um, things like that from the very, very start. And these were concerns that bubbled up from the very beginning. I remember hearing about these concerns back in December of last year. You know, these these were things that were that were questioned. How bad really is this virus? And in, you know, a, a socialistic state like like China, um, you know, I think there you know, you have um so it's sort of a recipe for disaster because there's a lot of propaganda coming from Beijing. And so um, I think there there have always been some legitimate concerns that, you know, a lot that the rest of the world didn't see the virus coming. Would we have had time to prepare? Um, you know, I still think that that there would have been a pandemic. I think maybe, um, you know, if there had been good information coming out of China, we could have done things to prevent the spread, um, at least to some extent. But the fact that the World Health Organization sort of seems to have operated in concert with Beijing is is really infuriating. So I understand. I actually understand President Trump's anger and the anger of a lot of leaders across the world um, over this. And I and I I understand that um, that there needs to be sort of this independent investigation. Um, I do agree with you though that we can't be jumping to conclusions. I read the letter that he sent, um, and it seems like he sort of circles around. Um, you know, uh, basically accusing the World Health Organization of working in concert with China. And he says that they need to be more independent. They need to be independent of China, which I, I think is a, is is fair. But I think rather than point the finger, I think this this first step that the World Health Organization has taken in launching this independent investigation into the organization's response, I think that's probably a wise move. And it's something that I think a lot of us are sort of tapping our fingers on the table, you know, <laughs> looking at the World Health organization saying, yeah, you do need to investigate this. Let's find out what really happened. Um, Not not to say that what scientists, you know, claim happened where the, you know, the virus started in a market and, you know, it it moved from animals to people. Not to say that that didn't happen. I don't think there's a lot of compelling uh, evidence to show that that's that that wasn't what happened. But I think there needs to be a deeper investigation. I do think China um, that, you know, Beijing is hiding things. I won't say China, uh, but Beijing is hiding things. And um, I think that the World Health Organization does need to be a little more independent um, of this country because, you know, now we find ourselves in a in a world of hurt. And, you know, the, the, the idea there's been an economic downturn worldwide. Now we have, you know, this tremendous mental health crisis going on. It just seems like the stakes are pretty high. And so I think that this step of an independent investigation is, is good. I think it's a good first leap. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a larger point, I guess I, I would I would make or something that occurred to me is, you know, Donald Trump is an old man and he grew up in a very different world. Uh, <laughs> and, and no, I mean, because what, when you take a look at uh, the history of international organizations, a lot of the big international organizations were formed uh, after World War Two. You know, the, the, the United Nations, the WHO, I think in 1948 and so forth. And these were organizations that basically were formed by the U.S. or largely by the U.S., guided yeah. by U.S. values and things like that. And and United States got very upset when all of a sudden these other countries who we were wanted to do our bidding, more or less, for their own good, of course, started to take kind of an independent course. And all of a sudden, our pet international organizations weren't doing what we wanted. And 
you know, now things are changing because China right now, at least, uh, you know, their economy is, is, is the second largest in the world. And if you measure it in terms of purchasing power parity, it's actually significantly higher, larger than that of the U.S. And we know which way the trends are going. And China's the world's largest exporter. You know, they, they're working on three of the, uh, of the eight most promising vaccines for COVID. Uh, you know, they're the, and so, China is not the country, is not the China that Donald Trump grew up with that could just be sort of pushed around and so forth. And my concern is that by not recognizing this reality and by trying to back China in the cor- into a corner, we're actually going to potentially lose more than we gain, which is not to say that I disagree with you about China covering things up and so forth. I think that's very likely, but it's a matter of how do you approach it? And if you approach China as this country that we can just sort of push around when it's not anymore, then I think we're maybe not going to get you know, the sort of positive results that, that we would like. I guess, you know, um, I guess my response to that is to, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, um, but my response to that is, is, you know, I guess a little bit emotional. I think I'm still angry. And I think a lot of Americans, um, Republicans and Democrats alike are still angry with China for this um, lack of good information, uh, you know, flat out misinformation, sugarcoating, propaganda uh, from the start. And I guess um, while I don't think that pointing fingers is necessarily where we need to be, I don't think there's a ton of compelling evidence um, that this was, you know, China's fault largely. I think there is a lot of compelling evidence to show that there was this giant mis- misinformation campaign and yeah. that the World Health Organization really sort of worked in concert with that. Um, you know, you you have situations where the World Health Organization uh, wasn't allowed into parts of China to do to do work, but then was re- sort of um, uh, had this relationship with China where the, the Chinese government would report these statistics. The World Health Organization would take them at face value and report them. Now, the World Health Organization has come back and said that um, the reason they did that is because they wanted to maintain a good relationship with China because they wanted to be able to go in there a little deeper to help, you know, the the people and, and the government sort of, um, you know, deal with this growing issue of coronavirus. And I understand that. I understand that there's sort of this delicate balance, especially when you're, a, um, you know, a UN organization, this delicate balance with a with a really volatile government and a, and a socialistic government like the one China has. Um, but I just I have so many concerns um, and I and I understand that the frustration and the anger because I feel it myself. So I'm just not willing to give China a pass on a oh. lot of this right now. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not at all either. And I guess my I don't think we disagree really at all on this. But no, I don't think we do either. But my my point, I guess, is that the right response or the most productive response is not, well, we're just going to pull out because that power vacuum, and we pull out of these organizations, whatever they are, these multilateral treaties, that power vacuum gets filled. And if the number, if the biggest economy, the biggest military, the biggest number one superpower in the world pulls out of these things, well, hey, number two is more than happy to jump in there and to exercise more influence. And so my concern is not, it's not that we shouldn't be angry at China and so have, you know, absolutely but by just kind of pulling back and saying, well, we're going to take our ball and go home. Well, that actually, I think, helps China. And that's not what we want to do, certainly. And so I think it's a very counterproductive type strategy. 
So, okay. So, and, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily asking this, having made up my mind one way or the other, I'm just curious. So if we're in a situation where the World Health Organization um, is now going to, um, you know, conduct this independent investigation, do, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you think that President Trump threatening to pull funding was what prompted that? And do you think that, um, I, I guess this is speculation, but do you think that that would have happened had he not uh, threatened to pull funding from the World Health Organization. Well, yeah, and I think I think threatening to to pull funding and pulling funding are two different things. And so mm-hmm. I, I see your point. And so maybe it's just essentially a ruse or a, a way to gain some sort of leverage. And in, in that case, that that might actually be an effective way to get action if other diplomatic channels that are less sort of aggressive have been tried and failed. So yeah, absolutely, I think, if that's the case. Now, but but I think we've seen a trend in the Trump administration to just simply try to withdraw from a lot of things. And maybe I'm just extrapolating from that larger trend, which concerns me, because the last thing I want to see is the U.S. giving up its global leadership position because they're Mm-hmm. China's, I think, will generally jump in to fill that gap or Russia will try to do it to the extent that it can. And that's the last thing we want is our main strategic rivals to have a greater influence over the rest of the world. And so, so yeah, I see what you're saying. And if, if it is, if that is the case and if the push comes to shove, you know, uh, but that's the problem, of course, right? Because you make a threat like that. And then if it doesn't happen, then you pull out or you lose you face. You Exactly. And Donald Trump is certainly, you know, not about losing face. And so then you end up kind of weaker, which is why I think you need to reserve these threats when, you know, very to make them very kind of limited and focused and strategic. And I don't really think that's necessarily the Trump way. I think even though John Bolton is no longer part of the Trump administration, certainly no friend of Donald Trump's, that's still the kind of, you know, you know, in your face kind of approach to things that worked really well. When the U.S. was a global hegemon, you know, but now the world is not like that. And so, again, you have these old guys who grew up with a view of the world formed in the 1960s and 1970s when those sort of strategies made sense. But that isn't this world. And I think, like it or not, we need to adapt to the actual reality of our time. And that means we need to change our approach to countries, especially, you know, China. Yeah, I, you know, I couldn't help but think about all of the situations just while you were talking. I was thinking about all the situations where um, President Trump basically used this maneuver to get his his way. Um, and I'm and, and the one that comes to mind is um, or the situations that come to mind are happened early in his um, term where he was basically um, threatening to pull um, funding and to um, sort of erase tax benefits for these American companies that were manufacturing their goods overseas, for example. Um, And that was, and it, it's funny because it's there's a part of me that says, well, it worked. It worked. It brought a lot of these companies back to American soil. They didn't want to lose out on on these, you know, tremendous benefits that he was sort of dangling in front of them like a carrot. But at the same time, um, you know, I I understand what you say about, you know, the, the fact that the world has changed. And my big concern, my overarching concern with all of this is is having China um, sort of overtake the United States um, as a as a global superpower. And, yeah. you know, I, I think about how dangerous that could be. Um, 
And, you know, the, this idea that we would have to work with China, it's such a delicate balance. You know, there's there's certainly a diplomatic aspect to it, like you said. Um, I do think that, um, which is the question I asked you, I do think that hit, that Donald Trump's um, threatening of, um, you know, withholding funding definitely prompted the, the World Health Organization to act. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think logic says that if you if you make a threat like that and it's, you know, if, if the World Health Organization hadn't moved, um, he would have had to have made good on yeah. that threat and it would have been dangerous. So I do think moving forward, this is some this is a conversation we need to have again. Um, but it's it's something I've I've thought about a lot over the past week and um, and I and I've sort of changed my mind on it's at several different points. It's sort of an ongoing situation. Super interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, and I just think we're essentially at the point uh, that. Great Britain was in, say, 1915, 1920 or something like mm -hmm. that, you know, and and we're no country stays at the top forever. And you just look at the trends and the demographics and everything else. And just like the 20th century, at least the latter half of it was the American century. It's sort of hard not to see how the 21st century doesn't belong to, to China in large part. Again, not not because I'm, you know, not proud to be an American or anything like that, but it's just the, the way of the numbers and, and how this, you know, it's, sure. and I think we're, th that's my concern is that so many people making these decisions are brought, were, are, were brought up in a world where that just, where the dynamic was very different. You know, we had all the, we had all the sticks or we had big honking huge <laughs> sticks and no one else had much of anything, but now, you know, okay. So, 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 uh, Xi Jinping says, you know, we're not going to limit access to vaccines and, or PPE or anything like that, but Hey, you know, uh, they could, they could change that. And you know, that things could, what happens if the top, if the, if the top, uh, you know, vaccine, comes out of China, the best thing. And they say, well, you know, we'll get it to you, but oh, I'm sorry, there are some problems in rolling it out and so forth. So they've got some sticks now and their sticks are getting a lot bigger. And that's why I'm concerned that we need to, we need to just be, be aware of that reality. And I think too many people uh, in the Trump administration and probably just generally aren't aware of that reality. Yeah. And I think this is sort of this ongoing bigger battle between this idea of nationalism and globalism, you know, and this sort of finger pointing that goes on both ways. Do we just sort of accept the idea that there could be other superpowers that, you know, sort of come into view and and threaten to overtake us in, in, in other ways? Um, do we accept this reality and work within this this framework or do we try to build up our own resources and try to, you know, maintain power where we can, which is, I think, which which I think speaks to your point about uh, the fact that if we lose this, this, um, this, I guess, I don't want to say influence, but if we lose this role within the World Health Organization and if we just withdraw funding, that sort of opens up this vacuum of power and that China, a country like China, could come in and just take it. So, um, yeah, I think moving forward, I, you know, the, the idea of the thought of globalism sort of makes me cringe. Um, but in order to prevent that, maybe this could have been handled a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. but before we end today, Kristen, maybe I thought we could move on to sort of a non-political sort of thing and maybe talk about our <laughs> recommendations for the week. What do you say? Uh, I love it. Definitely. Okay. Um, well, why don't I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you start. I know you said you had something. I don't know what it is, so it's going to be a surprise to me, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> So um, something that um, I've actually gotten into in the last week is um, I'm sure a lot of people listening have have used this app, but I downloaded the Calm app. I'm not sure if you yeah, yeah. have you heard of it, Mike? Yep. Yeah, I think I think most people have um, and probably a lot of people actually have it on their phones right now. So um, 
you know, it's funny because I'm not typically a, an anxious person, but I have a lot of trouble going to sleep at night and especially with everything going on and, you know, with our schedule so crazy. I'm I'm actually working, you know, these insane hours because I'm working from home now and, and the lines between, you know, my home life and my work life have blurred and I can't seem to turn it off at night. I'm just having trouble and I don't want to take a sleeping pill necessarily. So I downloaded the Calm app. I did the the seven day trial and, and you know, it's an expensive app, um, but I can say I, I paid the money for it and I think it's worth it. I've used it every night this week. Um, there are, you know, a series of meditations. There are these like uh, really soothing bedtime stories that you can listen to on the Calm app. I have a, a pair of headphones that's pretty comfortable. I, you know, settle in at night. I lay there and I listen to these bedtime stories and they put me right to sleep. So, you know, I think in light of everything going on, there's, you know, all this stress and, you know, people losing jobs, economic problems and, you know, just in, issues with anxiety that are rampant right now. The Calm app is a really cheap and effective solution to sort of those sleepless nights and some of that anxiety that may be bubbling up. Um, and I and I, I fully endorse it. I think it works. And actually, I, I've started to listen to some of the meditations with my kids. So they cool. love it, too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, uh, I actually am. <laughs> a, I, I meditate pretty much every morning and I've tried calm and headspace awesome. and so forth. I just now use yeah. kind of a, a meditation timer, which which is free. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put a, an app up that I that I use and recommend that if for, for folks who maybe uh, don't have the means to do the, the Calm app, there's a there's an app that I use called Insight Timer, that's Insight Meditation. I think that's, that's actually pretty good too. And I think you can use that for free as long as you want just to give people an option. But yeah, I think that's that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, My recommendation is actually uh, a series of things, I guess you could say. The, the novels of a guy named P.G. Woodhouse, who is a guy, an English guy who... Uh, well, lived from 1881 to 1975, so a long time. He was incredibly prolific. He wrote around 100 books, depending on how you count various compilations and so forth. Um, there, are, Most people probably know him for the Jeeves and Wooster series, uh, which actually was a TV series with uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And I I love them. They're they're light and fun. I think he's probably the funniest writer in the English language. Uh, there's this great 99-volume set of his things from uh, Overlook Press. I actually own 62 of the 99, so I have a little more work to do, but I, I love them. Uh, and I'll post a link, actually, of recommendations of where to start with P.G. Woodhouse, because there is so much and he's so overwhelming. But uh, it's a nice kind of escape from really everyday life, and I highly recommend it. So there you go. All right. So, uh, uh, but we we have a lot more. There was so much we didn't get to, Kristen, like, for instance, the latest developments in the Flynn case, uh, the possible non-renewal of unemployment benefits, uh, Donald Trump running around taking hydroxychloroquine and not wearing masks and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, by the way, you know, the U.S. announcing it's going to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty with Russia. So all kinds of stuff that we didn't get to today. But we are going to get to for the special supporters only show. So if you are a supporter, you'll be hearing that. Well, Wednesday, which is when we release that, or sometimes I forget and release a little early, whatever. But uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, whenever I get to it. But also, uh, if you're 
not as supporting you'd like to be, well, you know, patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, if finances prevent you from supporting the show, but you would like to get the bonus content, just send me an email, Mike at politics A bunch of people have already, and I am happy to set you up with the bonus content for, for free. If you can't, you know, afford to. So, uh, also if you could, one thing that is free is just subscribing to the podcast. That makes a big difference. One day in the future, when we actually have advertised, they will give us more money if we have more subscribers and downloads. So that really does help and it doesn't cost anything. Same thing for leaving ratings and reviews and also just, you know, telling folks about the show on social media that helps us out an awful lot. And we really do appreciate it. And just for general questions, comments, you know, listener mail stuff we like to do, just send us an email at mail at There's also our bipartisan politics subreddit the URL we always put in the show notes, or you can just search for bipartisan politics on Reddit. There's our Facebook page where each week we post a new show and there are, you know, various comments. You can go back and forth. That's facebook.com slash politics guys page. And we are on Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show is produced by, well, us, Kristen Matheny and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.